I always find like my first thought is not the best thought. I have to force the process of getting three or four thoughts down, basically putting myself through intellectual CrossFit. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Marketing Against the Grain. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner. I'm here with Kieran Flanagan, and we have a very, very special guest for you today. We are talking with Alex Lieberman, who founded Morning Brew, is one of the smartest, best learners that I have ever met. Alex is great at digging into problems and really understanding what makes something tick, what makes something successful. So we're going to kick right into our normal show. We're going to go off some of the things that really caught our eye this past week, and then we're going to do a deep dive with Alex on a bunch of the things that he has learned and observed while working and building Morning Brew. So Kieran, do you want to kick us off with, with segment number one today? I'll kick off with my normal thing where I say something random before getting into the things we want to talk about. Oh, please, please do. I just want to tell everyone I'm on week five of Wim Hof. How is that? Wim Hof is basically, it's like breathing slash cold therapy slash yoga. All at once or in different segments? Your morning session is basically breathing exercises. And so the, actually the breathing exercises from Wim Hof are one of the few that do have scientific studies that show it actually does help nervous system, help immune system, help inflammation in your body. And then he goes into like yoga and then goes into some meditation and then the cold therapy. And so the breathing is cool. Actually, I enjoy the breathing, like breathe fast and then actually how long you can hold your breath for. And you do feel over time you can hold your breath much longer. The thing I am really struggling with is like cold therapy. <laughs> I don't know if there's like any science behind like some people just find cold much more painful. Yep. And I'm definitely one of those people. Oh, yeah. I will actually say I like cold more than I like really hot. Me too. A really hot shower is like unbearable to me. But a cold shower, like at least the way I find it is the first day I do it really painful. Second day a little less painful and then it starts to become normalized. But yeah, the folks like Wim Hof who literally are just jumping into frozen lakes where there's a little circle cut out for someone to dive into the hole. Yeah, absolute crazy yeah. talk. So I, this is not the point where I should say I'm doing cryo later today. Yeah, <laughs> keeps going full on. I, I'm full cryo. I love the cold therapy. I'm up to uh, three and a half minutes at negative 66 Fahrenheit. It's amazing. Highly recommend. What do you feel after that? Okay, so I'm going to divulge something that's going to be very polarizing. I drink no coffee or no caffeine. Mm -hmm. So I'm like super awake, super alert. If you needed my best mental output for like the next three to five hours, I feel like I could like solve the world's problems basically in that period of time. I just feel really great mental clarity, energy. It's, it's honestly amazing. That's awesome. And then like it speeds your metabolism, does a bunch of other things that are interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Good for skin health and everything. But the mental side of it, which I know Sam Parr over My First Million is doing Plunge has kind of talked a little bit about that too. Right. It's a game changer on like the mental clarity side of things. I love that. Yeah, I still have the crutch of coffee. So maybe one of these days if I give it up, it'll be- <laughs> You just freeze yourself. It's not gonna be coffee to tea. It's gonna be coffee to cryo. <laughs> yeah. Kieran, how long can you hold your breath now? The first time I did it was 30 seconds. It wasn't that good, but I do have asthma, but I, okay. I'm up to like two minutes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's real improvement. It's really weird. You feel such a kind of overwhelming sense of tranquility. Like everything stops, like everything in your body that stops. You can only really focus on holding your breath. That's the part I enjoy most actually is the breath holding exercises. At the moment, it's like a cold shower to hot to cold and the cold are one minute each. Next week, it goes to like daily 10 minute cold showers. 
It's like, that is intense. That is intense. If you want to go down the rabbit hole of extending your breath holds to like five, six minutes, you got to just start listening to a ton of David Blaine content. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Because he spent a lot of time talking about how he trained himself to hold his breath for, I think, I can't remember what it was, like nine minutes, 10 minutes. Yeah, it was something incredible. I need to do that. Something that caught my eye on Twitter, I'd love to share with both of you to get your thoughts. It comes from Brandon Shu, the VP of Product Acceleration at Shopify. And it was a really cool operator model called Swinging the Pendulum. And so the thing that he describes in most businesses is you kind of want everyone to be somewhere in between the outer edges of the spectrum. So examples of this is you would tell your product team to optimize for speed, but kind of focus on quality. Everyone needs a KPI, but you need to have qualitative goals as well. Don't think about revenue versus like generate revenue. Like they're the opposite ends of the spectrum. Focus on generating traffic or focus on improving conversion. What you really want someone to be is in between those things. The thing that he uh, talked about at Shopify, what they believe is you're better off like short bursts at either end of those spectrums, solving for the extremes. And kind of as a pendulum, you kind of go up to the extremes, down to the extremes, like opposite ends of the spectrum. And at some point over the short term, you're solving for extreme outcomes, but over the long term, it kind of balances itself in the middle, but it's a better way to make progress versus like always telling someone to kind of be in the middle of the outer edges of the spectrum. Wanted to like open that up, hear what you both think about that. Cause I think it was like a new way to think about how you would task teams with delivering results. I want to make sure that I fully understand it. So the idea is that let's even use the example of morning brew for a second. If we were swinging the pendulum, hypothetically, you know, say we're in the early days and we were writing our main newsletter and swinging the pendulum would basically say, okay, you could optimize for growing your list. You could optimize for the quality of your newsletter, or you could optimize for launching new products. Is it basically saying that at least from this principle that focusing on one of these things for call it a month to three months, I don't know what the time period is that Brandon was talking about, is a better strategy long-term than hypothetically setting goals for quality of the newsletter, speed of growth, and launching new products all at once? So it would actually be like size of the newsletter and quality of the newsletter. That's like one axis and they're opposite ends of the axis. They're inherently the opposite of each other. And where most teams would be tasked with is, oh, like grow the size of the list, but also think about the quality of that list. And the one that he gave them, most product teams are like speed of execution versus quality of the products that you're shipping. And so his point is in Shopify, they want to live sometimes at the outer edges of those spectrums and solve for very extreme short-term outcomes in like small bursts. And then over the long-term, that will kind of soften itself out into the middle. And there's an example that you've kind of done at times in HubSpot. You were just like, hey, don't care about how any of this stuff converts. Just figure out how to grow mass scale at the top, right? Like it's like solving for the extreme outcome and then trying to work through the problems when you actually have them. And I think that's the point he's making is like, try to pick the extreme edge of that axis and work on that for a short period of time. Here's the thing. There's a couple of things in this. You're framing it in the extremes and then the extremes are important and all. Right. But the thing that matters is the swinging to the extremes and not stopping in the middle. You can't just live on one extreme always. You have to go back and forth. And, you know, in the product development, for example, right? Like if you focus crazy on reliability, right? You're going to solve that problem, but you're going to stop innovation. Totally. And so you eventually got to swing back over and innovate and build some new products. And then your reliability is going to go down. So you swing back. You know, one of the things I think that 
humans are especially bad at is forgetting lessons of the past. Mm -hmm. And not that long ago, you know, Brian Halligan went to MIT, Brian, who started HubSpot and, you know, one of his favorite professors and I think friends over time was Clay Christensen. And we forget a lot of Clay's stuff now. And he was right. And one of like the big versions of that was uninspired compromise. How do you avoid consensus decision-making and just kind of watering down everything? And I think the great thing about this framework that Shopify put out is it kind of puts that off the table because you are intentionally picking the extremes and you're acknowledging to everybody that you're going to go back and forth and that you're setting up a culture of change. Yeah. And a culture of change is key to any kind of organization that's going to grow. Interesting. I also wonder if called the pendulum model if it makes sense at every stage of business. Mm-hmm. And that's not a saying it doesn't, mm-hmm. but I think that's where I'd want to dig deeper. Like, for example, I think when you're first starting your business makes a ton of sense. Like if you want to put your first product into the world, first of all, it is probably the most resource constrained time in the life of the business, Mm. right? It's just you building. And so like all you care about is shipping something into the world that is good enough for human beings to use that hopefully solves enough of the problem you're trying to solve so you can capture information and then iterate on it. But like trying to make that product perfect on day one obviously isn't the winning strategy because you trying to iterate on a product without any source of feedback or data doesn't make sense. Like to me, it makes a ton of sense there. My assumption is that Brandon or the folks at Shopify would also say it makes sense at a large company scale, right? Because this is when you end up running into things like the innovator's dilemma and like things move slower. I think here, the biggest thing is it's training people to be okay with the feeling of the machine breaking Mm -hmm. or there being kind of like cracks in the concrete because naturally when you are optimizing for a certain thing, that is, it's a, an extreme, cracks are gonna form, especially if you haven't done it before. So I'll even give you the example. Like if we took this exact practice and did it at Morning Brew, right? Like a big part of Morning Brew strategy is we are creator first. We're launching a lot of shows and franchises with creators. The most extreme version would say, hey, let's not focus on perfection of quality right now. Exactly, yeah. Which for a long time would be the focus. Like how do we make sure everything is perfectly on brand for Morning Brew? Let's not focus on that. Let's focus on getting 20 new shows out the door this year so that we are forced to build the infrastructure to support a network of that many people. To scale, exactly. In doing that, we can expect is gonna break. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's interesting. There's a couple things here. It's the fast break versus the slow break, right? Yep. It's the whole frog getting boiled in water. And if you know you throw it in the boiling pot, it's going to jump out. If you slowly raise the heat, it's going to yep. get itself boiled. And that's what happens to businesses. If you have slow breaks, you die mm. because it's too late before you realize you have to change. Totally. And I think what's interesting is that everything you were just saying, Alex, also oddly connects back to your Winhoff thing, Kieran, where what matters is that you pick something and you're intentional about it. Right. Right. Like you feel good about that deep breathing in the Wim Hof routine because you are doing something that you're very intentional about. You're tracking progress and you know how you're getting better or not. The same thing holds through whether you're an individual or a company. As Darmesh likes to say, die of overeating versus starvation. Right. They try to do too much. They don't pick and they don't focus and they aren't intentional. Yeah. And I also think, you know, this model, it probably works best for what I would call just like high growth businesses or companies that have the aspiration of being high growth businesses for people who want, who their goal is to just have like steady, eddy, cash flowing businesses. 
maybe this isn't the right approach. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's partially based on the goal of the business. And if you have a high growth company, to me, that's very directly correlated with what Reed Hastings and the folks at Netflix talk about all the time, which is this idea of very uh, high talent density, high concentration of basically A plus players, not settling for A minus or B plus players. And the reason I think these probably go hand in hand is by naturally swinging the pendulum. You're just forcing discomfort. Of course. (laughs) You're forcing you're forcing discomfort. And at the end of the day, like the discomfort inevitably, my guess is for a high talent density culture will make people feel fulfilled in the work that they're doing. One of the things I'll leave with him, Brandon, just to make sure we ran this piece out, is he had a really good point that pendulum swinging can make the management team look dysfunctional because you're like switching between extreme goals Mm -hmm. in a short period of time. So you have to get very good at explaining the context and the why. That's great for any manager to understand. You should always like do a really good job at telling people the why, getting great at the context. Kieran, on that, most managers fail because they feel like they have to say that the thing that they pick to do is the perfect thing. And the reality is there's no perfect strategy. The first thing you have to do is articulate, here are the risks and the downsides of going with what we're going with. We think the upsides outweigh it and we're going to do it, but we all have to go into doing this knowing that these are the risks. And if we run into them, hey, it's what we picked. We're going to work through them and solve it. Most managers feel like they have to like polish it up and present it perfectly. And you you fail if you're going to do that. Yeah. So two things here. One is there was somebody responded to that thread saying, Amir, who said, how often do you swing the pendulum? And I'm really interested to understand like how to Shopify or any companies that operate in this way. Mm -hmm. How do they think about the speed? Mm. of the pendulum swing. And also how does that speed, that cycle change over time? The second thing is to what Kip was saying. I put something out earlier this week about this, this idea just broadly of strategy and what strategy is. And the reason I wrote this actually going back to Clayton Christensen is I'm reading the book, How Will You Measure Your Life Right Now? Mm-hmm. And what they talk about in the book is, right, people think about strategy in this static way. You go to this offsite, You uh, put your heads together with your executive team. You write this strategy doc. You put it in a glass case like the Declaration of Independence and it just sits there and then you execute. And then you do that again like a few years from now. And it's just like strategy is a a living, breathing organism that actually is probably only 25% right when you first set it. And to me, in a lot of ways, this idea of swinging the pendulum it's not just a force function for discomfort and growth. It's a force function for information. It forces a lot of information to come at you faster than you would have expected or received if you weren't swinging the pendulum. Yeah. The more comfortable managers can get with saying, hey, like sometimes there's no right or wrong decision. There's just like a decision to be made and iteration. And I think like most people are actually operating in that way. Totally. Next stat. I've got a fun stat for you, Kip and you, Alex. I know you're interested in the Web3 space. So Listeners will know we enjoy Web3. We're passionate about Web3. You will also know Kip is a big fan of NFTs. I love NFTs. Here is a wild stat from Alex Adela, the OpenSea co-founder. There are now more NFTs on OpenSea than there were pages on the internet in 2010. There's 250 million searchable NFTs on OpenSea. That's pretty wild, right? Because NFTs, for the most part, are valued because they somewhat have scarcity. Uh, I don't think that is overly true, but it also is like a really interesting indexing problem. <laughs> You're such a search nerd that you think of this as an indexing problem. I know. Think about it. Like, how do you start to like index those things and rank those things and get signals for those things? Because 250 million on OpenSea, if you pull that growth forward, we're going towards one to one. And so you have a Google-esque type problem for NFTs. 
the thing that humans are bad at is what's called refactoring. When the world changes and just changes by orders and orders of magnitude. We are moving to a market-based society where everything is going to be ownable, priceable, tradable, everything. NFTs is just a fancy way for the token management to actually do that and create the marketplace around it. But imagine literally everything in the office around you right now, if it was just like I had a live mirror on the internet and anybody could buy it or trade it for you. It's like, I've got paintings up in my office. There'll be NFT digital versions of those someday. And you know, I'll wake up someday and somebody will want to buy my painting for some amount of money. And I'll say, yes. And like, that's just how it is. That's not a tomorrow version of this world, but that's a next 10 to 15 years version of this world. And so the scale is going to get crazy. I also think it's interesting to just see where my brain went here, right? Because originally when I saw this stat, I'm like, yeah, it's a big number and it's very self-serving for <laughs> one of the co-founders of OpenSea. Of course. But like in 2010, right, we've talked about, you know, when you're talking about order of magnitude changes, right? The difference between 2010 and 2022 of where technology is and the ability to create things on the internet are, that's basically the stone ages of the internet. Like the, these yeah. last 12 years have created so much compounding effect of the ability for creation to happen on the internet. That said, I still think it is really something interesting to dive into because my initial reaction in my head was like, what is the right comparison here? Mm. Like, is it to websites on the internet? Yeah, that's a great point. Or I was thinking to myself, is it to Google images? Yeah. Like, is it to the number of images created on Google? And then I kind of created in my head, I was like, wait, no, Alex, it's not. You're just thinking about NFTs as these basically images that show you have ownership over them on the internet. But that's also not what it is. Imagine every yard sale, every flea market, yeah. every every trading card, every art show, stack all of those things together. And that's what it is. Yes. And it's not just like the things that I'm quote unquote collecting, right? It's like if no, I look five no. years from now of like what's sitting in my MetaMask, what I envision is like, okay, yeah, sure. Maybe I have a doodle or an ape, but I also have like my receipt from buying something at West Elm mm. and I have the mortgage for my home and like I have all these other things where it's literally just now there's digital record of my ownership of these things that actually has nothing to do with collection or art or these things that generally everyone defines as the NFT world right now. It's really just like a digitized version of ownership. Right. And so I think it's interesting to think about and, and also private versus public, right? Because it's also like what is it going to look like where I have digital record of my home mortgage, but maybe that's not visible to everyone, right? In the same way that there's a lot of sites on the internet that aren't accessible to everyone. Like you have to put in your sign in, you need to be able to log into. So yeah, I think it's such a hard problem because when you try to think about a proxy on the internet right now, whether it's Google images or Google search, there's not, it only hits a single layer of ultimately what would be searchable of the total volume of NFTs. So for everybody listening, I want to go back to like, think like Alex mode here. Alex just did a great job of showing you how he thinks. He took this topic that was really abstract in NFTs and really walked through, well, this is what I first thought it was like. And then I questioned myself and I expanded it and then I expanded it and expanded it. And he kind of drilled down to like the most abstract version for himself so he could kind of get a basis of magnitude, where it was going to go, how important it was going to be. And I think as you're looking at anything future, your job as business leaders, marketers is going to be, how do you make the abstract future more reality? Like that type of process is what you need to do. The second thing to build off what you were just saying, Alex, it's like the magnitude of our systems has changed. Imagine if you can collateralize anything in your life. 
right? Which is what you're talking about. Once you have all of your debts and assets in a digital wallet, you can collateralize anything. You can collateralize the furniture in your house. Yep. Art doesn't matter because there's a real-time market, there's a clear record, and the ability to change the financial infrastructure and build new businesses is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, totally agree. And to that point, I find like this is the only way for me to think through things for two reasons. One is because I always find like my first thought is not the best thought. So like I have to force the process of getting three or four thoughts down, basically putting myself through intellectual CrossFit. And I would say the second is I'm just a hyper visual person. Abstraction is really uncomfortable to me. And I know at times it's necessary, especially where there isn't call it like an analog example. But the more that I can think of tangible cases, examples for trying to understand something. When I don't feel like I can wrap my head around something like clearly in a way where I could explain it to the two of you, it's a really unsatisfying feeling. And so I just try to look for examples to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah, there's a really good mental model don't know if I, I think I've told you this story before, Kip, the time I accidentally joined a cult. Um, <laughs> it's actually a real thing, but it, it just happens that it, there's like weird cults around it called neurolinguistic programming. It's like kind of like what the Tony Robinson things would have studied in, but it's really mental models and the way, change the way you think about things. But there's a really good example of how you think very quickly, like the quickest people where they're able to take something and either chunk up, like what's this an example yeah. of, or what are examples of this to chunk back down or chunk laterally? Like, what are other examples that are like this? And it's a really good way to like, kind of what you did is like, oh, what are more examples of this? What's this an example of? And then you can kind of go lateral or up or down really quickly. It's one of the few things that I learned within that period of my life that was really good. And look, uh, I mean, I know we'll get into this, but in today's day and age where the world is moving so quickly and most skills are becoming commoditized, I think at the end of the day, like, to be both a great entrepreneur, but also just a great professional, right? It requires critical thinking. Right. And all we basically talked about is critical thinking, but in a methodical way. Like if you told someone, hey, go think critically about this, they wouldn't know what that means. But if you can actually lay out, you know, whether you call it neuro-linguistic programming, whether you call it mental models, basically what is kind of a playbook to be able to assess a situation, a trend, or a business in a critically thought way, I think it's a, an invaluable skill for people to learn. I agree. I, I agree. All right, before we move on from NFTs, I would say, Kieran, I think you and I should commit to something. I think in episode 50, we should drop a limited NFT collection from the best quotes from our guests. Alex is going to be my first idea is not my best idea. I like that. Love it. We're going to do that and donate all the proceeds from that to charity. I love it. Uh, it'll be amazing. Great idea. I think that is definitely Alex quote of the episode so far for everybody listening. Thanks, guys. But take us to the next segment, man. The real ending to the NFTs is just uh, for all of us who love the, who love who love nostalgia. <laughs> LimeWire is coming back as an NFT marketplace. Oh, <laughs> just like that. I did see that. Oh, LimeWire! I've missed getting viruses on my computer. If, if you're a failed business, just launch as an NFT marketplace. That's the route back to <laughs> the route back to market. Kip told me to read something yesterday. It was a Packy from Not Born's latest newsletter from The Fount. So I started reading that and all of the things in that article were great, were fascinating. But the thing that I wanted to kind of touch on here, because I think it's a good segue into what we want to talk about is one of the things Packy did a really good job of is creating a kind of mental model or framework of why someone like Elon Musk is so great how he builds companies and how he thinks. And a lot of it came from Tim Urban from Wait But Why. Yep. So I think that's where we want to kick this off. And particularly to you, Alex, you yourself have been incredibly successful. Morning Brew has been an incredibly successful business in a short period of time. And if people want to go and listen to you, I'm sure you've done lots of podcasts and how you built that business. 
you've also have successful podcasts. I know you have another one called Imposter right now where you're talking to leaders and, and great people about mental health and, and how they've become successful. That's a really hard question to answer, but if you had to try to distill it down into that kind of mental model or framework for why great people are successful, how they're differentiated and how they think and approach business, what kind of lessons have you learned? When I think of what make the most successful entrepreneurs or just world-class performers exceptional, to me, what I'm about to talk about is kind of table stakes. And then there's always some X factor, call it like the final 20% that is dependent on the person. And the way that I think about rages from everyone, from my co-founder, Austin, who's an exceptional operator, to I was talking yesterday to uh, on my podcast, Imposters, to Emmanuel Acho, who is an NFL player. And now he's published his third book in three years, won an Emmy for a show he did with Oprah. It, it really runs the gamut because it's a question of performance. What does exceptional performance look like? The first thing goes back to critical thinking. Why is critical thinking so important? What critical thinking in my mind really is, it is constant evaluation of the most important things or priorities in your business, the most important questions you need to ask yourself to one, accomplish your goals of the most high priority things in the business, but also the most important questions you need to ask yourself to not be caught off guard mm. and do so while intaking information constantly. And so for me, I think the best critical thinkers have basically two traits. They have the always on brain. And by the way, what I will say is the always on brain absolutely has trade-offs, right? <laughs> you don't say. So, so when I am describing what makes great world-class performers great, I'm describing what makes them great professionally. The unfortunate part is a lot of the things that make them great professionally, I actually think create significant trade-offs personally. Mm -hmm. Amen. To me, the real win is how do you manage those trade-offs where you don't concede on a lot of the things you want personally in life while getting what you want professionally. To me, critical thinking is the combination of ways of thinking. So Kieran, to talk about what you were mentioning before, whether you call it mental models, whether you call it lens stacking, looking at situations through different lenses, whether it's by leveraging previous example or experience or history, right? It is kind of, to me, all of the foundational ways of thinking around a situation. And, you know, this is why I think, you know, Charlie Munger has become known as such an exceptional thinker because he has this, this patchwork of mental models or ways of assessing the same situation in different ways. And it leads to basically removing as many blind spots as you can from assessing the strategy of your business, big decisions you're going to make, et cetera. That's the first piece. The second piece goes to what I would call the obsessive, the always on brain. And the reason that's important is it's almost like if you think of a human being as a program, right? The one piece is what is the program that's run? What are the lenses that you're looking at situations of big decision in business, our one-year strategy, what should our org chart be, all these things? But then the second variable here is how often is the program running? Mm. Because if you're only running the program once every year, what if all this happens, all this information comes in about your business that should have you making a different decision or changing direction, but you're not running the program enough? And to me, the program in this case is your obsession, the amount of times that you are taking in information and you're thinking through these mental models. And so just to use the example of my co-founder, Austin, you know, he's thinking about Morning Brew at all times. He's thinking about it when he goes to sleep. He's thinking about it when he wakes. He feels the anxiety of like, if things are not moving fast enough, 
And what I call this, this kind of trait is the bomb sniffing dog of business. And to me, every company needs a bomb sniffing dog of business. Basically someone whose brain is operating constantly, it's scanning constantly. So it notices micro cracks before the normal person notices full on cracks. And because they notice micro cracks, they take proactive action basically intuitively, whereas other people would generally be reactive because it's not how their brain is working. And so to me, critical thinking really is everything. But again, massive trade-offs because how do you turn it off? Well, so so hold on. I'm somebody who's an obsessive, so I, I identify a lot with with what you're saying. And there's a lot of personal trade-offs. And, you know, I've, I've lost many friends and many, you know, yep. different things because of that. And, and the only thing you have to do is you have to just tell people who you are up front. You're like, hey, you don't understand. This is how I am. And I'm not being rude to you. I just don't know how to like think or work in any other way. And so you're, you're talking about, you know, somebody seeing those cracks. Part of it is like, can you be emotional and be obsessive? I, I think of somebody like Austin, your example, it's like, he's clearly intellectually honest. He says, this is a problem. I don't care if I caused it, Alex caused it, the person down the hall caused it. It's a problem. I must fix it. And there are some other people who I think would look at that and say, oh, that could be a problem. But if we raise it, you know, Alex's feelings are going to get really hurt and it's going to be really tough. And can we take that on right now? Like, one, do you think that those two things can coincide? And how, how do you be an obsessive? How do you be intellectually honest without being soulless? first of all. And and second of all, like any good examples of that? Any, anybody who you think balances that right in the business world where if somebody is listening to you and like, stop talking about me, like I, I'm this obsessive person, how can I be better? Like who, who should they look to? It's a great question because the way that I always looked at even my relationship with Austin was that we complement each other so well because we're on different parts of the spectrum. And I'm really referring to, especially in the early days of Morning Brew, where I would concede on immediacy at the expense or like in service of, let's call it like empathy and EQ, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So I would very much take the approach of similar to any like long-term relationship of pick your battles. And so I would wait a long time before picking the battle. Whereas Austin would very much take the approach of any time you allow something to happen, it changes expectations of others and it sets a new standard for what people think great performance is in a business. And it is incredibly difficult, right? Because you can see how both of these sides serve a company in different ways. You know, I think the way that I would operate naturally creates an environment that is easier for psychological safety to exist, yeah. for employees to feel the ability to be vulnerable, to share issues, et cetera. But on the other side, it could lead to things not moving fast enough. The the machine, the proverbial machine of the business, not spinning fast enough. On Austin's side, right, less psychological safety, but mm-hmm. performance and operational excellence naturally way higher. Mm. And so my view is it probably lives somewhere in the middle. So I have a slightly different view that I want to test out with you, Alex, because you, you see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was 13, 14 or something, like my dad came home with the George Bernard Shaw quote that I will like never forget as long as I live, which is, you know, the reasonable man adapts to the world and the unreasonable man adapts the world to himself. And so all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And what you pick 
to work on actually matters the most. And if you are charting an unreasonable journey, you are trying to change the felt people, for example, how people look at their health on a month-to-month, day-to-day basis. That is an unreasonable journey based on what everybody knows about modern medical science, hospitals, everything. Then I think you can't do that in the Austin way. You can't do that in a way that is unempathetic, that is just purely for speed and efficiency because you have to bring people on the story with you and you are charting this like very uncharted water. The flip side is if you're running Procter & Gamble or if you're running a very established business that knows exactly what it is, then you can lean into the like operation efficiency, urgency, all of those things. So I think there's not a one size fits all. I think it depends on the course you were deciding to chart. I think for what I believe that all future great businesses that attract great talent are going to chart an unreasonable course because all of the kind of commoditized businesses are going to be automated and you're not going to be able to get great talent to work on kind of lifestyle business and commodity businesses. So I I think with that, it's going to come some EQ that's going to just have to happen. So I agree. And this is where I think kind of like both sides of the brain or both kind of of Austin and Mai's natural ways to me are like the perfect, you know, marriage where like for me, where I'm looking to just level myself up is in the ability to have hard conversations to operate with, you know, what Gary Vee would call loving candor, what Kim Scott would call radical candor. Mm-hmm. And for Austin, I think in the other way, it's, you know, the perfect marriage of operational excellence with empathy and love. And to your point, actually, it's interesting that you say the found thing that like you would actually think it's call it like my natural way to operate something unreasonably. Cause actually in my head, my original thing was like, I would think it would be Austin's natural way because to do something unreasonable, something that's completely challenging the status quo and your ambitions are massive, the speed by which you want to do it is massive. How do you achieve that when you're not holding people to unreasonable expectations? Isn't this back to the pendulum swinging, but for people where great people operate at the extremes? I think when you operate at extremes, your strength is usually a weakness, right? Whether you're just like a very obsessive person and that is a a strength, it may turn some people off, but that obsessive nature means that you're able to do things better than anyone else and people will follow that, like a certain portion of people will follow that and they'll forgive you for not being, I'm not saying this is you, Kip, they'll forgive that person for being unempathetic in other ways. And so, you know, truly great people, I think operate at the edges of that axis and they're truly great at something to the fault of being bad at all these other things, but people can see they're truly great at that thing and that's what they follow and they forgive the other things. One thing I would also add here is I do think there's a world in which you can be as let's call it going back to the the bomb sniffing dog of business analogy, you can be as like hyper proactive and like making sure the standard of operation in your business is constantly high, but do so in a way that doesn't come off as you being an ass. Like that is possible to achieve. I think it is rare. This is why like everyone's heard about the, the concept of radical candor, but I really do think practicing it is kind of the winning formula here, right? Like for listeners that don't know what radical candor is or doesn't know how it works. Basically, if you picture an x-axis on one axis, so like on the y-axis, let's call that one caring deeply. So caring deeply about the people that work for you or you work with. High on the y-axis is you care really deeply. Low on the y-axis is you don't care deeply at all. On the x-axis is challenging directly, right? Mm. Far to the right, you challenge people directly. Far to the left, you don't challenge people directly. So I think- where most people live 
is they either live in the place of challenging directly and not caring deeply. And what that's known as in business is an asshole. <laughs> then you also have kind of the opposite corner is people who care deeply but don't challenge directly. Bad managers. And yeah, that would be someone who's basically passive aggressive or yeah, behind your back yeah. person. High on challenging directly and higher on caring deeply is what is radical candor. That is what is really hard to achieve. There's the example that Kim Scott uses in her book. So Kim Scott was at Google. She was running the AdWords business. And basically what had happened is the business was absolutely crushing. Kim Scott was presenting to, at the time, Eric Schmidt, who was running the business. Presentation went incredibly well because the AdWords business was doing incredibly. Basically, Eric was like, holy shit, what money can I give you to reinvest in this business? So she was feeling great. Kim walks out of the meeting. She's walking out with Sheryl Sandberg, who at the time was her boss. And, you know, Cheryl proceeded to basically spend some time telling Kim about all the great things she was doing. But then she went and said, can I give you some feedback? And she went on to say, I noticed you said the word um a lot in your presentation. And is it the type of thing that you feel nervous in the presentation? If you'd be open to it, I would love to, you know, get you a coach to work on it. And basically Kim was like, oh, that little thing, that's what you're giving me feedback on? No, it's all good. It's all good. And Cheryl clearly like this was a big pointer of what Kim needed in order to present well. And she's like, I don't think you're understanding it. So I'm going to speak a little bit more bluntly to you. When you say the word um in these big presentations, you come off stupid. <laughs> and the reason, you know, most people would hear that and be like, that's such a, a an ass thing to say, called your employee stupid. The reason Kim didn't think about it in that way is because one, Cheryl understood the kind of the love language she had to use to make something stick with her employee. But also, you know, Kim in the book gives all this context about how Cheryl so deeply cared about two things, Kim's progression as a professional, not just within Google, but just in her career. And she also just cared so deeply about Kim in her personal life. Like Kim talked about at some point losing a family member close to her and Cheryl was the first person to check in on her and take care of her. To me, you can't fake those things. And that's the only way to truly achieve constant direct challenging of your employees or your coworkers is when they know that everything is coming from a place of actually giving a about them, their personal life and their career. I think that's really hard. I would just say on that, for people listening, it's like, what is the thing that stops most people from doing that? What I heard in that example is that the closer you get to somebody, the more you show you care, the more you demonstrate that, the more right you have to be really candid with somebody. Yep. And most humans feel and think the exact opposite. Exactly. That the closer I am to somebody, the nicer I need to be them, the less authentic I can be with them because we have this really close relationship and I don't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah. So if you're listening and you want to just like make one little flip of a switch in your head, it's changing that dynamic and say, oh, the closest people in my life are the people I can be the most direct and honest with. And if I can't, then I'm actually not as close to them as I think. Yeah, I saw, um, I think it was a tweet yesterday about someone saying, like one of the hardest transitions is when you're in the early days of a business, your relationship with your employees is as a friend. Mm -hmm. And the hardest transition to make is when you go from friend to parent. And I actually challenge that in some ways, because to me, the switch from friend to parent, I understand the intention of it, which is maybe like you don't end up being as close with all of your employees. So I get that intention. But to me, it also feels like a cop out where it's like you can't be that friend to people because you have to manage them in a different way. And so I'd actually argue it is both possible to be a friend and actually it makes it more probable to be a friend and manage your coworkers or employees 
directly if you're doing it in the way that you just described, Kip, which is understanding actually it gives you more permission yeah. to hold yeah. people to account when they know you actually give a shit about them. That's why I think the player coach is the better analogy. Yeah. You go from being a player, playing with people, then you have to go and you have to lead them and you have to be a coach. A coach can be a friend sometimes. Coach can be a hard ass sometimes. It can be everything in between. The perfect relationship with somebody is a coach because... Once you're a coach, you realize that you have a purpose. You are there to help those people get the best out of what they can possibly achieve. And if you are not, then you are wasting their time. And to that exact point, you know, one of the other things that I see in in great leaders, uh, especially people who just manage others, is they are the opposite of what I call smoke and mirrors leadership. So basically the person who tries to motivate, who uses pump up speeches and gives direction to their team without knowing what the hell they're talking about. And like the biggest thing is the best leaders have either done the jobs that they oversee. Yes. Or by the way, like to me, that's the ideal scenario, but also it's impossible sometimes to be a leader who's done every job of every person you manage. Yeah. If that's the case, you need to have the self-awareness to understand that you need to do the homework to truly understand the, the jobs that you oversee. And I think the worst leaders are smoke and mirrors. What I call this is knowing what's possible. One of your job as a leader is to know what is possible. Like I will remember in the early days of HubSpot, I was asking my marketing ops team to do something with a Facebook API. I went and read the API documentation. Now, I didn't know how to do the API work, but I knew what was possible in the API yep. so that you could then go and have a real intelligent conversation about that. And if you do not know what's possible as a leader, you will fail. Yeah, it's know enough to be dangerous and know enough to right. be authentic. Yeah, you don't know how to ha need to know how to do anything, but you need to know what could be done. Yeah, yeah, totally. People respect managers who can solve their actual problems versus being able to like motivate them and feel better about the challenges, problems like, oh, that's cool. But like, I actually want you to say something tangible that will help me figure out how to solve this thing. Yeah. And also people who are delegators for the right reasons, right? People yes. who delegate because it's the right reason, because either you as a manager can be doing higher leverage work that impacts mm -hmm. the whole team and the company, or you're delegating because actually there's someone on your team who's significantly better at doing the thing that you are delegating. The worst type of delegator is like the lazy finger pointer where you're delegating simply to be able to work less. And it is very clear when someone is one versus the other. Look, I talk to a ton of startup leaders, Alex, you do too. I bet one of the questions you get a lot is like, oh, what's a great marketing leader look like? Or what's a great sales leader look like? It's like, Go freaking talk to the 10 of the best sales, marketing, customer success, whatever leaders out there. And you'll know really quick. You'll spot the patterns. You just have to go and do the work. Most anybody in this world will talk to you, especially if you're just going to say, hey, I want to learn about how smart you are. Will you talk to me for 30 minutes? They're like, they're like sure, that's great. Totally. Yeah. And I think also this idea of, you know, you talk to some great leaders. This is something I always say. I know Austin says it and you hear other people say it, that people go, they just get it. And I think just like, uh, getting to the heart of what does just getting it mean, <laughs> right? Like we've talked about a few things. Like to me, just getting it means you're a critical thinker, you have strong EQ, but like actually going deep into what does getting it mean is a really valuable thing because we use that phrase, but actually understanding what sits below that phrase, I think it creates a repeatable model for people to understand what builds a great leader. So I wanted to end with one point uh, to kind of send us out is for our listeners, like we were talking a lot about communication styles I feel like 90% of the people who you start off talking to you and they're like, oh, I, my conversational style, I'm just direct. I just say what I mean. 90% of those people are not direct. They're total assholes. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Nearly anyone I've ever, ever met who say, oh, I'm just going to direct communication style turned out to be a total 
pixel. <laughs> not, not, Those are the, the chronic pe people who live in the bottom right, right of uh, the radical candor grid, yeah. people who don't care and they challenge directly. Well, so on, on our way out, Alex, if folks are listening and they want one kind of thing to leave with in terms of how they could be a better leader for their team, what advice would you give them? I would just tell them to ask themselves a very simple question, which is the people who report to you, if they were asked a question by their best friend, their sibling, or their parent behind closed doors where they knew that this could not get back to the company, if they were asked by one of them, does XYZ person, the person I'm talking to, does this person actually give a shit about you as a human being? Mm -hmm. What would they say? And be very intellectually honest in answering that question. And if the answer is yes, to me, you're in an amazing spot to have the permission to hold them to account. If the answer is no, you have not earned the right to challenge them directly. That's great feedback. Love that. That's perfect. That's a great closing note. Sweet. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Marketing Against the Green with the fun facts, fantastic guests, and everything else in between. Until then, please, please, please subscribe, follow us wherever you get our podcast. It helps to build a community around this, a community of like-minded people that we can interact with, that we can bring on the show. So please follow, subscribe, and we will see you next time. <laughs>